if we can't take lessons away from this crisis, then we've failed ourselves. That's really what this was a big exercise in. This project, nobody asked for it. We sort of took it up ourselves and everyone was so motivated. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. In today's episode, our host, Rain founder, David Lawrence, speaks with Jackie Barbieri of Whitespace, a spatial data analytics company. She recently published the results of her work that used raw mobile geolocation data to track and predict COVID-19 outbreaks. Jackie, uh, first, it's a great privilege to be able to have a conversation with you and uh, what we're going to be sharing with the audience uh, not only will be of great relevance, I think it'll be uh, highly interesting. What I would like to do, though, is um, maybe start um, with sort of your career in government and and your decision to start Whitespace. And uh, maybe you wouldn't mind doing a brief introduction um, uh, concerning your work. Absolutely. And thank you, David, for the opportunity to come on here and speak with you about my work and some of the problems we're all facing in the world today. In terms of my background, I actually started out as an intelligence analyst during the height of the counterterrorism fight um, in around 2006. And the space I started in was actually sort of unconventional at the time. Open source information was only really beginning to be used in a credible way in the community. And that's really the focus of my early work, um, looking in the Arabic language open source world, um, trying to get a handle on what our adversaries were thinking and what their intent was and what they might do next. And so for a time, I provided direct support to operational missions downrange, as we say, so in the in the theaters of Iraq and Afghanistan. And that was really deeply fulfilling work, but more on the sociocultural side of things. And fast forward a couple of years, and I got exposed to a series of emerging methods that were coming into use and into broader practice to manage the reams and reams of multi-source big data that the community was um, obtaining and and gaining access to. And those methods were really focused on using what might be non-traditional data sources, marrying them up with more traditional uh, means of surveillance, whether that's imagery or um, uh, human reporting, and understanding patterns of behavior And again, getting at that really important question of intent in a way that would convey a a sort of decision advantage to the end customer. So whether that's the operational commander, a strategic decision maker, what have you. And from that moment on, I think that was in 2011 that I first got exposed to these methods and and started to work with them in an R&D and an operational sense. But I never let go. Um, and uh, so much so I believed in it that uh, I decided to in 2014 to see what kinds of opportunities there were to apply this type of thinking about non-traditional data in a broader space. So not just national security, but also in 
the more commercial realm. And that's when I started Whitespace. And um, so I want to be clear with the audience, uh, as you use the term open source, this is the information or the data that is out there. It may not be uh, easy to find, it may not be uh, easy to curate, but basically your mission, uh, both within the intelligence community and now at Whitespace, is to find the various sources of data and then understand the signals from within that data that can be helpful in solving various problems, whether it's counterterrorism or understanding the motivation of various actors. Uh, but you're now applying that, uh, now that you're in the private sector, um, the same methodologies uh, to see what you can do to solve a wide range of issues that are now confronting uh, our community. More or less a fair overstatement or understatement of your mission. Absolutely. It's all about uncovering those micro signals. Uh, they're sort of like breadcrumbs. And some of them exist in one data source, some of them in another. And our capabilities really center in the space of bringing those together to understand the full picture okay. as quickly as possible. There's a great uh, metaphor that our good friend and colleague, Denny Watson, who also had a great career within the intelligence community, she, she refers to as not just uh, finding the haystacks, uh, but finding the needle-rich haystacks, um, and then being able to separate which ones can be useful. Um, so I've always thought of that metaphor. Yeah, actually, not to not to you know cut you off, David, but I'm going to take that metaphor a little bit farther because if I don't know to do anything, it's uh, sort of beat a metaphor to death. I actually talk about our methods and capabilities in terms of being able to find the right needle in a stack of needles. So when you're dealing with big data in a lot of cases, it's very hard to distinguish signal from noise. And even once you can neck it down to a signal-rich or a needle-rich haystack, you still need to be able to differentiate among those needles themselves. And that's really exciting uh, from an R&D perspective in terms of what we've been able to do in the last couple of years. Okay. Without turning this into a competition, Jackie, I'll add to that uh, by saying <laughs> that, that, that the needles do change on a daily basis. Uh, so it's the ability to continue to think and learn and identify as well. Absolutely. Okay. So it's so dynamic. Absolutely. Right. I love that. Okay. Not a static exercise. So you, you entered the private sector and I'm going to qualify that, that while operating the private sector, you've actually continued to do public service and it would be great because it's very exciting. Um, it, it's not why you started white space in 2014, but you shifted uh, when you began to see the crisis around COVID and um, the need to make smarter decisions and to understand the virus and the data. Maybe you can take us through uh, sort of how you began to look at this and where you are now and some of the truly, truly exciting uh, insights and innovations that you've been able to create. Sure. So. <laughs> I was really up late one night trying to get my arms around 
what was happening in the world with respect to the pandemic. This was February, I believe, of 2020. And the reporting was starting to pick up pace. Some conversations I was having with colleagues um, in government and outside of government got me to start to really pay attention to this as a potentially systemic event. And as I was reading up on it, both from a professional curiosity as well as, you know, a human being uh, living in society, I was really fascinated with some work and analysis specifically uh, focused on social distancing and what that means and how we could implement it and how effective it could be in helping us manage the worst case scenario. And that sort of sunk into my subconscious, as it were, I guess. And the next morning, it came back into the office, and I was in a routine meeting with my team about a specific data source and how we were going to model it and simulate it to incorporate into training. So those methods I was talking about before, uh, we've spent a great deal of time over the last seven years of the company's existence training you know, some of the best analysts in the world and how to apply those methods, as well as data scientists, by the way, how to apply those methods and incorporate them into their systems and their workflows. And so we're in this meeting about, about that data source, which we'll get into in, in a moment, uh, exactly what that was. And I had, it sort of struck me that our expertise is in looking at big data and from that big data, modeling human behavior, finding patterns, and understanding these measurements in a very specific and as accurate a way as possible. And so why don't we apply those methods to try to measure when and where people were socially distancing? And then try to do that on a very broad scale if it worked. But I also sort of had the perspective to say I might be sitting here with a hammer and looking at everything as a nail. Um, and so I first pitched it to my team and I got some cocktails and some side eyes, uh, a little bit of disbelief. But within a few minutes, I think we were all marching in the same direction. And so with them sort of by my side and behind me, I started to reach out to folks in my network who were far more knowledgeable about epidemiology and public health than myself, right? And come from a national security background, a data analytics background. And we were fortunate enough to be introduced to Dr. Forrest Crawford, who is a researcher at Yale, um, and sort of pitched him on this idea, hey, if we could use data that's often used for mobile advertising, right? So this is data that, that provides sort of like GPS pings from mobile devices anywhere in the country. And if we had access to a source like that and we could process it to measure the CDC's definition of social distancing, which is being within six feet of another individual for a period of, it varies, five or 15 minutes uh, outside of the home. Would that be useful? And he 
almost immediately said, yes, it would be quite useful because effectively what you would be measuring is contact rate and being able to get at a proxy for contact rate or a very close proxy for contact rate would make it possible to do a much better job of predicting where uh, transmission um, might rise and where outbreaks might occur and when. And that was kind of all of the encouragement that we needed. And so I sort of picked up the proverbial phone and started reaching out to different data providers in this sort of ad tech market that I mentioned earlier and getting samples. And we began prototyping. Within three months, we, we had a viable prototype of a contact metric. And within six months, we had started working with the Connecticut Department of Public Health to provide our measurements on a statewide, townwide, and even census block group level of where contact was highest every day. And very soon after, the governor himself was actually being briefed on these metrics. And that was a really powerful and and impactful project uh, from my perspective, because we got to see our metrics being used as a leading indicator, like one of the only, I think, leading indicators of disease outbreak in an applied sense. It was informing policy decisions, regulatory decisions. And in the meantime, we began this really important work of validating the metric, right? So it was still somewhat experimental. Um, Again, we'd only (laughs) been in development for less than six months, but the results and the validation work were far exceeded my expectations and gave us a lot of confidence that we were indeed measuring what we set out to measure. And that sort of, uh, that was the genesis of the paper uh, that we recently had published in Science Advances. So it's a little overview of the project. Which will, by the way, we will be linking to this broadcast. So uh, I'd love to hear just sort of how that's been embraced and, and whether this model is scalable more broadly to other states and possibly to the country um, in its entirety. I also really resonate with that idea of if we can't take lessons away from this crisis, then we've failed ourselves. And that's really what this was a big exercise in, right? So this project, nobody asked for it. We sort of took it up ourselves and everyone was so motivated to see it through. And our reward on the other side was by the time we had gotten to the point where we we felt like we could measure contact. and, And by the way, I should probably state this clearly. The really staggering finding of our validation work was that in some cases, the contact metrics were predictive of future outbreaks weeks before they actually occurred. And, and you talked about that, use that word actionable, David. I think that's so important. In order for information to be actionable, in order to actually convey some sort of decision advantage to a leader or a decision maker, it needs to be timely. A lot of people talk about this. But in our case, those weeks mattered. 
right? That allowed the Department of Public Health to preposition testing resources, better allocate resources, um, sort of in anticipation of higher caseloads, and to even think about messaging, as well as recommend regulatory changes or, or enforcement of distancing policies in areas that were kind of repeat offenders, right, where, where contact seemed to be persistently high, despite the measures that were in place. So we, we definitely take the lesson away from this, that in order, giving just a week or two of notice that was reliable of, of what was likely to happen, the state was able to manage the impact quite well. We also took a lesson away that there's a lot of emphasis on prediction in, in my line of work. And I knew this before we went into it, but prediction's very hard, right? So there's one thing to try to find the needle in a stack of needles. It's another thing to try to read the needles <laughs> and anticipate what's coming over the horizon. And, and the profound lesson I took away from this sort of live experiment that we were doing was that understanding what exactly is happening right now in a reliable way is sometimes just as good as being able to predict with some margin of error what's going to happen in the future. And it's a really hard thing for us to do, maybe not on a one-for-one scale or, you know, based on things we see reported in the media or and even on social media, but to get that ground truth right now and be able to see it on a population scale, which was really critical to um, the way we did our analysis, it gives you just a totally different type of signal, I think, than we've ever had before as a species. And in terms of future use cases, absolutely, these models, I think, will be helpful um, and these metrics will be helpful in the unfortunate event of a future uh, disease outbreak, possibly even helping us contain that better when spillover does occur. But the fundamental lesson for me isn't even about that specific use case. It's about the power of being able to understand how we behave as a society every day and trying to understand the places where that understanding could make the daily life experience for everyone that much better. I know that sounds very idealistic and ivory tower. I got to admit, I'm, you know, I'm a philosopher at heart. Um, but I think that there's tremendous potential here in creating, using this type of information to create outcomes that are wins for multiple parties um, in a strategic sense. What is interesting is obviously this was a little bit of a an experiment within Connecticut, but now an experiment that's been written up. And so it's an available lesson uh, for other states in the country to incorporate. And that's important and making sure that that's not uh, lost. And whether you believe in the genius of uh, our founding fathers, uh, part of the conception at our foundation was that, you know, this is an experimental nation and uh, 
giving states a certain degree of autonomy was to foster the notion of experimentation and differences. So um, this is, I guess, maybe the latest example, and hopefully people will take a cue um, from the nutmeg state, and maybe not every lesson is transferable, but certainly there are some very valuable insights about what we can do uh, around data. Secondly, I'd be absolutely remiss uh, not to point out to the audience that what you've accomplished and your team has accomplished here, in, and, rec and recognize it's a sm small measure, but an important one, was not done because uh, you waited for either a political leader or a policy leader to tap you on the shoulder. And I think this speaks incredibly uh, to your definition of public service, and I'll, I'll also say why we've um, built the Risk Assistance Network in exchange, in that um, I have been in, in the somewhat simultaneous time period that we have been in existence. Um, I have encountered so many people, many of whom came out of the government, by the way, or academia, who have seen an issue, a problem, and not waited for someone to tap them on the shoulder to see if they could solve it. One of the lessons that I see that comes out of the pandemic, because there are a number of people who were working similarly, I also see it on a day-to-day -day basis when you have a natural disaster. You see the people who rush to the scene who may not know anyone who has been affected, but they're just moved by a civic spirit of what can I do and how can I help. So um, uh, I want to sort of close on something else, which is just to talk about the data that you identified as being meaningful. Because I remember when you were developing this, we had discussions about a competing concern that the American people have and hopefully will increasingly have, which is around data privacy and how data that is otherwise open and available can be used constructively, but obviously can be abused as well. And maybe you can just talk about the data and the, I thought, the very sensitive steps you took uh, with respect to protecting privacy of uh, individuals and actually the privacy of communities. So uh, maybe we can get into that a little bit as well. I'm so glad you brought this up because if we hadn't touched on it, I think we would have missed maybe the hardest part of the whole project. <laughs> the hardest part wasn't processing 4 billion data points in a day through a, com a complex spatiotemporal pipeline. Uh, it was not figuring out how to interpret the metrics. It was not figuring out how to aggregate them. It was it was none of those things. I think for me anyway, my team might think otherwise, but for me it was this ethical question, right? So the data I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation and that you just brought up again, it reveals a lot about the individuals who opt in to share it. And so you're kind of put in this dilemma, right? The users opted in to share. That data gets resold to uh, or gets reported and bought by a third-party aggregator. And then I turn around and license that data from the aggregator. But I know what's in there. 
right? There's a great piece uh, that the New York Times published in, in December, I think, of 2019 called One Nation Tracked about this type of information. And it's almost like your, your DNA in the physical world, right? Your, your pattern of life, the, the places you go, the things you do, it's, to me, it's highly sensitive. And there is no one else in the world that has the same pattern of life that you do. It's universally unique. I know this from my, you know, my previous life, right? And so that made me, I think, even more attuned to the risks of working with this information. Uh, so during development, we put internal controls in place. It sort of made my team, and I didn't make them, but we, we agreed to sign uh, extra privacy and security documents for anybody who was in contact with the data in a raw form. And we also made a commitment to not just figure out how to make the measurements accurate, right, and timely, but to do it in a way that upheld what's called differential privacy. So differential privacy, you can, you can kind of read about it, but the nuts and bolts of it is you can't identify any individual device, like its owner, from the analytic product or from the metric or from the visual, right? So part of that, a really concrete way to understand that is if we're putting dots on a map, right? Think of GPS points or breadcrumbs. I'm never going to show an event that puts a specific device at a specific location at a specific point in time. Believe it or not, just with that information, you could learn a lot um, about an individual. And so how are we going to go about this process of measuring pairwise contact events, but then reporting those results in a way that upheld differential privacy? And that's where the uh, aggregation approach came into play. So we learned that if we were aggregating probabilities of close contact, so the probability that David, you and I ran into each other outside of the the coffee shop and we stood a little too close to each other and we hung out there for about 15 minutes and we talked. So the probability that we were within six feet of each other. And I took that event to say we assigned it a probability of 0.75 that we were within six feet of each other. And I summed that up with every other pairwise contact event in that census block group to achieve a score or a number that there was no way to back out of that score. Say it was a four on that day for the CBG where that Starbucks was, that coffee shop was. Um, there's no way to back out whether that was repeated contact between you and I, or it was several week contact events by thousands of people. And so by sort of setting the bar here, we learned that we could far exceed uh, that standard of differential privacy in how we were aggregating our metrics. So that was a huge, another huge lesson for my team and I. And it actually, um, I know we're going a little long here, but it actually carried over into another project that we did. We decided to see if we could take a look at another crisis or, you know, disruptive event, which was the riot at the Capitol on January 6th. 2021. Again, 
perfect example of the privacy issue, right? We had access to the data. Everybody who was sharing their location consented to it. But there was no way we were going to reveal, and under these sensitive circumstances, the exact location of any individual device. But man, was the temptation strong. To We were kind of faced with this challenge. And this was a time when I turned back to my team and and some fantastic ideas emerged around how can we show as accurately in a data-driven way, evidence-based way as possible, what people did. If you remember back then, it was, was this a crowd men- mob mentality that took over? Was it coordinated? Right? Some of these questions persist. We just wanted to see what the data would show. And so in this way, the contact metrics and that entire project led us to developing another differentially private type of analytic around crowd dynamics and crowd density and crowd movement and allowed us to sort of map out the events of that day from a bird's eye view and get some clarity around some of those key questions very quickly, actually. And so we continue to find new applications, new capabilities in that core pipeline that we built around contact. And I think that uh, we're just beginning to scratch the surface. And I, I want to make one more point, um, just just piggybacking on what you said about that sort of duty incumbent upon all of us. This would not have been possible without a really strong partnership between and collaboration between academia, private sector, and public sector. And to me, that's sort of the holy grail. Like, if you're really trying to solve a hard problem and operationalize the solution quickly, you need those three ingredients. And I've been a part of many efforts to try to engineer those conditions, and it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do well, to align everyone's incentives, um, get the right technical team in place, and so on and so forth. I, I would be mistaken if I didn't point out just that lesson of the power of those things, those groups coming together aligned behind a common mission or purpose or objective and each bringing their gifts or their capabilities to the table to solve it. So Jackie, first of all, uh, I want to thank you for truly a very uh, insightful and inspiring conversation. And I'm going to uh, get your commitment on this call today to continue the conversation Um, around um, the potential uses of data for public good. Uh, And I do very much want to continue the conversation around the ethical responsibilities around uh, data and privacy. You use the term with people who have opted in. It's a separate conversation. But understanding the so-called privacy agreements that we're all asked to uh, agree to. But Jackie, thank you so much and uh, your silence to my invitation to continue the conversation will be taken as acquiescence. Oh, and, yeah, and, I, I'm in. Sign okay. me up. Okay, <laughs> anyway. All right, thanks, thanks thank as you. always, and thank you for your truly, truly uh, considered uh, efforts in the broad public interest. Thank you, David. Till next time. David Lawrence spoke with Jackie Barbieri, the founder and CEO of Whitespace, which develops solutions that humanize the tools and methods used by data analysts and leaders. 
There's a link at Rain Worldview to a short video that explains how the White Space team measured contact for the study. Rain offers risk intelligence solutions to more than 400 leading corporations, government agencies, and academic institutions. More than one and a half million members turn to Rain for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Learn more about us at rainnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.